Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Critical Theory channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and I'm really happy to be joined today by Leslie Kern to discuss her book, Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies. Leslie is the author of three books about cities, others of which include Feminist City, Claiming Space in the Man-Made World, and she is an Associate Professor of Geography and Environment and Women's and Gender Studies at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick, Canada. Leslie, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Louisa. Great. It's a pleasure. Um, I really sort of enjoyed engaging with this book, um, which is a once very accessible and full of detailed kind of insights into the many sort of insidious, often covert and quite infuriating ways that gentrification changes the the shape of cities um, across much of the world. And... I think it will be of interest to a broad range of readers, as well as, you know, researchers in um, the field of urban geography and could bring into like quite sharp focus the kind of political and material dynamics shaping the clearly observable changes that are affecting many of our communities. Um, so before we kind of look a little deeper into your chapters and your primary arguments, could you just tell us a little about how you came to write the book? Absolutely. As part of my academic work as a geographer, one of the main themes that I study is gentrification. Uh, I am from the city of Toronto, which is a place that is no stranger to gentrification, and many of the neighborhoods that I lived in over the years uh, were either on the cusp or beginning to experience gentrification. So it was a topic that was visible to me in my personal life, and then one that I engaged with from um, probably the early 2000s when I was first doing my doctoral dissertation. I was looking at condominium development in Toronto. There was a huge boom of these you know, high-rise apartments, and it was a sort of question of, of who are these for? What is its broader purpose? Is it connected to gentrification? And from that time on, I've been intrigued by the question. But as a feminist researcher, I've also been... <laughs> Uh, intrigued and sometimes annoyed by some of the, um, if not oversights, then the glossing over of uh, some of the dynamics of gentrification that get less attention, like gender dynamics, racialized dynamics, issues of colonialism, issues of sexuality, ability, and so on, that I think all play into gentrification. And so one of the main reasons that I wrote this book was to try to bring a a, a feminist critical perspective to gentrification that didn't only center the issue of class. Yeah, great. And we'll we'll sort of dig down into those other kind of dynamics a little bit in a little bit. Um, So before we do that, I'm sure a lot of um, listeners will have their own kind of their own working definitions and perceptions of what gentrification means and and how it operates. Um, For me, though, sort of reading your book, 
demonstrated the extent to which some of the definitions we rely on don't necessarily encompass the full range of, of phenomena affecting our cities and detrimentally impacting the lives um, of the poor and the marginalised in society. So just as to start us off, what do we mean by gentrification and is it possible to adopt a one-size-fits-all definition, really? Well, I think you've given <clears throat> excuse me, a great summary of one of the issues now. We've had the term gentrification now since the early 1960s when the London urban sociologist Ruth Glass coined the term as she was observing what she called a a social and economic transformation of neighborhoods like Islington in North London. And at the time, it seemed counterintuitive. Why were middle-class families coming into the city, into areas that were uh, perceived to be poor, run down, um, in some cases, even kind of like slum areas? What was the motivation? And since that time, endless debate on that topic in gentrification studies. But what Glass was observing was this kind of neighborhood level, house by house, household driven process that today, several decades later, um, that that definition doesn't even come close to encompassing the range of forms and processes that we now call gentrification. So in this time, it's evolved in so many different ways that are quite abstracted and different from you know, what was first being observed in, in the 1960s. So yes, I think that kind of household by household neighborhood level gentrification still occurs, but we also have things like what I was talking about a minute ago, like a condominium boom or a high rise housing construction boom in many cities. That's very different from that kind of tiptoeing, slow process of middle class households moving into working class neighborhoods. We're talking hundreds, sometimes thousands of households being um, just just plonked into uh, neighborhoods through this new construction. We also have much more kind of corporate driven gentrification. So large developers and um, real estate investment firms that are driving the process in order to make make money off of new developments. We have city-led gentrification where municipal governments are looking to um, boost the tax base of the city, for example, or to give um, certain areas of the city kind of a facelift as part of um, urban renewal plans, as part of competing for new residents, new capital, new investment. And in in the, the, the last decade or so, we've also seen um, some some forms of like digital driven gentrification where online platforms and apps like Airbnb and the um, incentive to kind of rent out part or all of a home for short term rentals is also contributing to gentrification by um, limiting the available pool of, of affordable housing in cities. So, yes, such a wide range of of processes and forms that gentrification is taking now. Some people wonder whether gentrification is still the right term. But what Ruth Glass, I think, what's still great about her definition and the word that she came up with was that it does incorporate that element of class change, the gentry, right, the gentry coming into an area. And I think we have not yet come up with 
another word that isn't uh, that doesn't kind of depoliticize the process. If we call it revitalization or regeneration, those are kind of feel good words that don't um, cue us into the fact that there is a, a sort of a takeover of space happening, and in many cases, displacement that goes along with it. Mm. So next, I'd like you to just to tell us a little bit more about the format of the book. Um, so just to give the listeners a brief overview of its contents, so each chapter kind of focuses on complicating a certain misconception about gentrification, whether that's, as you said, gentrification is all about class or that's all about taste and aesthetics. So why did you choose to arrange the chapters in this way? And how does arranging the chapters by, you know, lies or maybe better call it reductive half-truths, um, help you intervene in sort of the current debates uh, within the field of urban geography? It's interesting. I kind of came to this format late in the writing process. It wasn't the maybe original idea that I had. I think the the ethos of challenging common stories was there, but um, it developed over time, I'm sure, as many of your authors talk about the idea that you start out with when you're writing a book is not the same thing that you end up with. But as I was working through the book, it became clear to me that that what I wanted to do was say, okay, we have all of these kind of stories, if you will, about gentrification, ways of understanding it. Some of them are more common in, you know, maybe popular mainstream or media discourse or just the the everyday conversations you would have down at the pub about what's going on in the neighborhood. Some of them are more likely to be found in academic debates and and so on, but they all um, give us a, a particular angle for understanding gentrification. But like any story, they are always partial. They don't necessarily capture everything that we uh, might want to know or, um, all of the the nuance of what's going on and how it impacts different groups of people. So the book starts out with something that I think is perhaps the most pernicious story about gentrification, which is the idea that it is a natural process, that it just kind of happens on its own, that as cities change, and, and of course cities change. That that is practically, you know, in the in the DNA of cities that they change. But the idea that they are um, inevitably changing towards becoming wealthier, towards becoming whiter in many cases, towards this kind of upscaling and that lower income. Uh, marginalized communities will are just naturally moving on and displaced to other places. That's a story that I think is quite a dangerous one because it depoliticizes the process and it um, feeds into this idea that gentrification is unstoppable and there's nothing we can do about it. So why bother? Why worry about it? The other stories then that I go into are uh, a little more nuanced. They're definitely not as um, dangerous, if you will, but they all... um, are, as I say, partial. There's many things that could be uh, more fully developed or understood within them. So I kind of talk about the idea that gentrification is about taste and aesthetics. I go in 
a little bit more to the notion that gentrification is a class-based process. That's a term that we see all the time in definitions of gentrification. And it's not wrong, but it's also not only that. So in that chapter, I really want to bring in a feminist perspective. I want to bring in insights from um, the theories of racial capitalism that try to understand how urban, uneven urban development has happened um, in ways that that align with uh, racialized and racist housing policies and other sorts of policies. Uh, I talk about the idea that gentrification is only kind of driven by an economic or capitalist logic and try to complicate that, for example, by um, noting the important role of ongoing colonization, settler colonialism, and so on as kind of a foundational element of that process. Uh, and and uh, through, you know, going through these, these stories and, and, and ultimately the idea that um, there's nothing we can do about gentrification is maybe kind of the ultimate story and trying to challenge that through examples of resistance and, and so on. I'm trying to offer people um, uh, multiple ways of understanding this complicated phenomenon, something that they can grab onto, something that they can recognize in their own experience or in the uh, world around them, and ultimately a little bit of hope that <laughs> through better understanding this process, we come up with a, a range of tools of, of that, that can help us to do something about it. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. So obviously, yeah, your first chapter, I think, but yeah, as you said, it's definitely one of the more sort of problematic misconceptions of, you know, that it's something natural and that kind of metaphorical aspect of it is, um, yeah, leads to really reductive conclusions. But I think beyond that, another one that lots of people really commonly fall into is this trap of viewing gentrification through a lens, a lens that's um, largely interested in style and aesthetics. So a good example would be, you know, the stereotypes about gentrifiers as, you know, hipsters with like moustaches and, and you know, a love of like artisanal coffee <laughs> that started bubbling up maybe a decade or so ago and has really helped to foment a reductive vision of what gentrification means for a lot of people. Um, so how did the notion that gentrification is driven by creatives and bohemians come about and what does this narrative miss? Yes, the um, the avocado toast theory of gentrification, perhaps we could call it, is, is one that, again, it, it's not that it's completely wrong, but it is perhaps missing the bigger picture. So how did this come about? Well, I think going back to those early observations of gentrification in the 1960s and 70s in cities like London, New York, Toronto, um, where some of the earliest academic work on the the topic was happening, uh, people were noticing what what kinds of people are involved in this process. And there did seem to be a kind of a, a, a bohemian group, a group of artists, uh, students, academics, people who were um, interested in either countercultural movements or more liberal progressive politics. They were not so interested in suburban conformity. They uh, didn't want to live, you know, the same kind of life as their parents. They were interested in 
cultural diversity. They uh, found there to be something kind of energizing and interesting about the city. And as humans do, we, we express our ideas and values and politics through style and aesthetics, right? Through outward um, appearances of how we style our bodies, our homes, the kinds of places that we frequent, the consumer choices that we make. And so it's become very common to kind of identify, at least on a surface level, gentrification by noticing what kind of people are in the neighborhood, what are they wearing, uh, what aesthetics uh, what aesthetic choices have they made? What kinds of businesses are they frequenting? What are they doing there? You know, do they prefer craft beer? Do they uh, want that organic avocado? Um, and and through noticing those habits as well as the kind of businesses that pop up to support those, those tend to be pretty clear signals of gentrification that people can uh, grasp onto. So there is this kind of long history of uh, that set of signifiers of gentrification. But one of the things that I try to unpack in the book is this question of, you know, yes, those those hipsters are contributing to gentrification. Uh, They are, you know, participating in it in various ways. But when we think about today in the 21st century, those hipsters are probably not um, multi-billion dollar uh, investment fund owners, right, who are driving decisions about urban development. They are not sitting on the boards of powerful city planning organizations. They are um, not likely to be engaged in high levels of real estate speculation. And in fact, many of those groups, again, this is something that's been happening throughout the history of gentrification as we know it, many of those groups end up displaced by the next wave of gentrification because they're um, not that financially stable or they don't have quite enough financial power to withstand something like an eviction notice or the you know redevelopment of um, the, the community that they're living in. So Yes, I think we can always raise questions about taste and so on and how these things might signal certain kinds of power, cultural power, for example. But we also have to keep our eyes on the prize, maybe follow the money and see who the truly powerful actors and agents behind gentrification are, especially, as I say, in the 21st century when it has grown so far beyond the household by household choices that individual consumers make. Mm. So I think perhaps one of the more provocative or surprising sort of lies or misconceptions that you address in the book is that gentrification is about money. And obviously, naturally, money certainly has a role to play in how the process of gentrification plays out, although the economic factors involved are more complex than, for example, the idea that gentrification is drip gentrification is driven by rentiers looking to boost their income by doing up properties in relatively affordable areas and then renting them out to moneyed professionals. So in this chapter, you address neoliberalism's role in creating entrepreneurial cities, which you've touched on, I think, already, and how this complicates sort of widely accepted economic theories. Um, So with this in mind, what aspects of neoliberal capitalism drive this trend? And how does analysing this phenomenon expand our understanding of the ways in which gentrification operates and subjugates people? 
neoliberalism as it has kind of been um, practiced and implemented in cities has drawn the property market into the um, circulation of capital in uh, both kind of fresh new ways and in in much deeper ways. So I, I don't want to argue that that is entirely new, but uh, going back, you know, even to Marxist theory, Marx called property sort of the second circuit of capitalism, and even way back then, kind of theorized that when uh, production, like factory production and so on, was no longer the um, main economic base of cities, that the property market would become the site of circulation of capital and the site of profit accumulation. And I think neoliberalism has hastened that process in this kind of search for what what are the spaces that can be capitalized on, right? How can we transform the uses of the urban space that, that already exists or that can be redeveloped into these kind of profit churning machines, right? So this um, need, the seeming need of the entrepreneurial city to find new modes of growth that don't involve uh, bringing a new factory to the city, especially in the global north where, you know, most of the world's manufacturing no longer happens. Uh, How are we going to capitalize on the space that we have? So residential property has become this incredibly important Uh, circuit. On a more everyday level, though, neoliberalism is also an ideology about how we live, about uh, right and wrong, about the values that we hold as a society. And as it has kind of deepened its its hold, we've seen, uh, I think, an increase in the idea of self-sufficiency, individualism, right? That everybody is responsible for their own success or failure uh, under capitalism, that we don't need to have social safety nets like social assistance programs, housing assistance programs, um, you know, free public education, universal health care, that these things are, are um perks that uh, create a lazy dependent kind of society, right? And that goes against the neoliberal philosophy of everybody taking care of their own and ultimately being responsible for whether they um, are a winner or loser in this system. So when that, you know, when we come back to gentrification, then uh, the the question of whether housing is a human right, for example, uh, kind of gets lost because it, it housing is is a market good, right? It's it's like almost like a seen like a luxury uh good in many cases. And the idea is that everybody is responsible for finding their own housing. And if you can't afford it, you know, too bad. That's your own fault. It's not the government's responsibility to help you secure housing. Um, so you know we we have this highly competitive, um, increasingly unaffordable world of urban uh, residential property that, um, and a lack of uh, then social safety nets to help catch those people who inevitably, uh, because let's face it, capitalism has winners and losers um, who inevitably uh, will not be able to, you know, secure that the housing and other services that that they need. Mm. 
yeah, the crisis that's certainly kind of intensifying over the years. Um, so now I just want to kind of turn to your chapter that addresses, you know, this misconception that gentrification is all about class. Um, and I think this will be of interest to quite a, right, a wide range of readers on the left as there continues to be a broad quite reductive debate about whether to privilege class or identity and political analysis and you know circles beyond just this kind of area um so could you tell us a little about this problem with um reducing gentrification to a class issue and who do we ever look when we adopt this lens sure this is very much the way that I came into studies of gentrification in that during my PhD, I was a women's and gender studies student, so I did not start out as a geographer. I was coming to these questions with um, feminist questions in mind, right, with, with, with feminist methods and a feminist analysis. So for me, uh, as I started to learn more about gentrification and, of course, you know, the majority of the literature highlighting the class dynamics, I was interested in not just how women, for example, as a group were affected by gentrification, and they certainly are affected in particular kinds of ways that have to do with gender uh, and gender differences and gender power imbalances, but I was also interested in how ideas about gender, about gendered roles in public and private space, about um, qualities of masculinity and femininity, stereotypical qualities of masculinity and femininity, were um, part of the ideology that was driving gentrification, and in particular, the case study that I was looking at of, of condominium development. And it struck me, and not only me, but other writers as well, that ideas about um, gender and gender difference are not sort of incidental to things like capitalism or to, you know, neoliberalism as a modern manifestation of it, but they are uh, inherent to the system's themselves. So we wouldn't have capitalism as we know it if we didn't have um, unpaid gendered labor in the home, right? <laughs> the system as it exists would, would never have developed in the way that it did. And that um, ongoing gender division of labor continues to uphold the system as we know it. So for me, looking at gentrification uh, was, was about more than saying, okay, class is the primary driver, and then people based on other identities will have different experiences of it, but was more interested in raising this question of, of like, okay, but, you know, ideas, for example, about gender difference have been around long before even capitalism, let alone gentrification. So um, why are we not taking this more seriously? Uh, I think the other, well, I won't say the other, but one of the other major um, oversights that I think is starting to be corrected in the literature is around race and how racial difference, again, is integral to capitalism. We would not have capitalism as we know it if there was not a pre-existing uh, hierarchy of racial difference that allowed for you know, some kinds of people and labor to be 
devalued, including completely devalued through enslavement and so on. We would not have that system without a hierarchy of racial difference built into it. So race is not secondary to capitalism, neoliberalism, or gentrification. It's it's built right in. And in the book, I talk about, uh, particularly in the American case, the long history of redlining in cities where um, Black communities in particular were prevented from accessing mortgage funds and other kinds of investment, you know, fell into disrepair, uh, even though the communities there worked very hard to sustain a, a livelihood and sustain community in those places. But those very conditions of, of disrepair and devaluing have now created the potential for gentrification since gentrification, you know, you want to find the place where real estate and land is cheap, right? You want to find the low value, the low cost place so that it can be transformed into something higher value. So if we think about, you know, I mean, can't talk about gentrification without talking about Brooklyn, for example, right? But Brooklyn has long had um, uh, very strong African-American communities. They, they, um, you know, we think about like the Brooklyn Brownstone, for example, as now this incredibly highly desirable form of, of property, but those were black communities. That, those, that was um, housing for, for black residents. And now there's been this, you know, shift in the idea of, of what that place means and what that form of housing is all about that's allowed uh, both white gentrifiers and also, you know, much larger, you know, investment firms and speculators to kind of come in and take over that space. So I think we have to pay attention to that history, right? That that history of racialized housing policy and recognize that um, it's deeply integral to the processes of gentrification that we see today. And if we don't understand these dynamics, then we're missing something important, right? Where if we don't know the whole story, then we can't fight back against it, right? If we only see kind of one process as driving it, then we're we're not equipping ourselves with all of the possible tools that we can use to uh, push back against gentrification. Hmm, absolutely. Um, so, so far, we've kind of discussed gentrification primarily in terms of displacement and the ways in which it kind of pushes people out of communities. But obviously your book also stresses that gentrification can take place in less obvious ways, like altering the atmosphere of a place. Um, so what do we miss when we look at gentrification purely in terms of housing stock and as a force that drives people out of their homes? Um, and what are the secondary effects of community displacement for those who manage to remain in their homes? Throughout the history of gentrification literature, again, even going back to Ruth Glass, her initial definition talked about displacement. So displacement has been core to theories of gentrification for, for many decades. But often the literature and research has kind of gotten stuck in this debate around how much physical displacement or, you know, outward movement of working class or racial minority or vulnerable community members has actually happened. There's a lot of problems with this, one of which it's extremely hard to measure because you're measuring 
people who are no longer there, right? So how do you even find and capture that data? But perhaps more importantly, what it's missed or what it's assumed is that there is this almost like this one-to-one replacement, like a new person comes in and somebody else has been pushed out. But uh, it doesn't necessarily happen like that. And gentrification can be very slow. Um, It can be a very stop and start process. It can, even within a neighborhood, you know, one block can be experiencing gentrification and another not. Uh, And so you you have this mix of longer term residents, new residents and people from different backgrounds and so on. But we haven't really paid attention to that messy middle and what it means for people to be living that experience, right? Many people are not physically displaced during gentrification. But as your question uh, is, is getting at, that doesn't mean that everything is okay, right? Or that people um, experience their community in the same way. And what a lot of the literature, the qualitative literature, which speaks to people living in or having lived in gentrifying neighborhoods has found is that there is a sense of of what some researchers have called unhoming. So a place that felt like home, uh, even though you're still physically there in the community, starts to feel strange and unfamiliar and sometimes even hostile and unwelcoming. So research with uh, seniors living in Harlem, for example, who um, you know, own their homes and are, are not necessarily at risk of immediate displacement, describe uh, that people don't say hello to them on the street, or people look at them like they don't belong there, or um, people uh, uh, express, new newcomers express dislike for the, the longtime habits of the community, whether it's the kind of music that's playing out of a shop, uh, door or or smells that are coming from restaurants. And they note that their children and grandchildren will not be able to afford to live in Harlem. So there's that kind of sense of like an intergenerational displacement in that the community won't um, be sustained after they pass away. So this kind of affective sense of displacement, um, a cultural displacement, a symbolic displacement, these are all terms that we can use, is very profound for people. Uh, They can feel quite dislocated and uh, that in some cases may be a driver of displacement, even if they could afford financially to stay in the community, they may no longer want to because it just doesn't feel right anymore or they've experienced uh, hostility from newcomers in the form of racism, in the form of more policing happening in the community, in the form of more surveillance, uh, or the businesses that they frequented that felt comfortable and welcoming are no longer there. And so people may choose to move. And we talk about that as a kind of indirect displacement, right? That there's this kind of pressure that builds that may eventually push people out. Or as I say, in the example of Harlem may prevent the next generation from coming in and uh, building a home in that community. So I think we we do have to pay attention to both the the kind of quantitative measures of displacement that that, uh, may happen. But if we don't find that, I don't think we can say, oh, well, gentrification isn't a problem or that 
displacement isn't happening because we need a much broader understanding of what displacement is and what it means in in people's lives. Mm. Um, So in the final chapters, you kind of, you explore um, like this kind of grassroots resistance to gentrification and potential strategies for turning the tide, which offers some really much needed hope and practical advice for readers, including those who may be profiting from gentrification. So could you briefly expand on this for our audience, perhaps with a few examples where people have managed to resist the overwhelming power of neoliberal forces, really? Yes, and and that power is is largely overwhelming. And that's, again, part of the rationale behind writing the book is to sympathize with the sense of like, oh, God, what can we possibly do about this? Or what can I as an individual do? Or what can my uh, little under-resourced community do about this? And to note that there are examples of successful pushback. One of the things that I, I note is that often those stories aren't told or they don't circulate very widely beyond the local context. So there might be this perception that, oh, nobody has ever fought back against gentrification, but it's just that those stories don't make the national or the international news. And even amongst academics, resistance has been really understudied in relation to gentrification. So there's still a lot that we don't know. So I wanted to at least compile (laughs) some examples to, as you say, give, give that hope. And the examples range from very direct action you know, social movement, mobilization type um, resistance to what we might call like maybe more institutionalized or um, state oriented forms of of pushback. So on the direct action side, I, I talk about the example from a few years ago now of the group Oakland Moms for Housing that occupied um, a house that was owned by a a property management real estate investment firm that was just letting the home sit empty. Oakland's in housing crisis. Gentrification from San Francisco has fully spilled over across the Bay. And people, especially uh, women, especially people in the Black community are really struggling to find housing. And yet this housing is sitting empty, right? And, And it's a form of a real insult on top of this injustice. And so this group of mothers, sometimes with their children, occupied this home, squatting it, basically. And uh, eventually the property company tried to have them evicted, you know, police were called and so on, but uh, kind of grassroots mobilization built up around it, that with the support then of some local city councillors, as well as, you know, people in the community, convinced the property owning company to um, transfer the ownership of that and other properties that they own that were sitting vacant to a community land trust. Community land trusts are another method by which groups are organizing to keep control of property the way that it might be uh, transferred, like sold or used uh, within the community. So setting up long leases um, in partnership with the city, uh, often for something like 99 years, is is a method by which gentrification can be uh, stalled or, or outright 
uh, halted. I was just reading an article today that that noted that there are now some 300 community land trusts in the United States, in 47 states, as well as in D.C. and Puerto Rico. So this seems to be a method of resistance that is really catching on and and growing. It certainly takes a lot of you know community organization as well as the um, agreement of municipal governments and so on to uh, let community land trusts get formed. So it's not necessarily you know an easy thing that one just snaps your fingers and it, it gets done. But if you're successful, then you have this kind of long term. Uh, ability to actually have community control over space and to resist some of that development pressure. So yeah, as I was saying, we have everything from direct action, you know, squatting, uh, protesting, uh, getting, you know, in the face of developers and, and city councilors and making it be known that, you know, starting a new project in this community is not going to be a walk in the park and you're really going to face resistance and you're going to have to listen and you're you're going to have to come up with plans that benefit the community to things that take a much stronger um, or uh, uh, that, that involve governments using the powers that they have, which I think for a long time, many governments have just refused to use powers that they have saying, oh, rent control doesn't work or regulation doesn't work. And uh, they, they simply haven't bothered. But there are things in their toolbox that they can do, whether it's moratoriums on evictions, strengthening tenant uh, rights, legislation, community benefit ordinances that ensure local benefits for community when new development happens. So getting governments to kind of dust off that uh, rusty old toolbox and uh, acknowledge that they do have some power in the face of uh, capitalist land markets and and to protect the the people that live in their cities. Yeah, great. Um, So now I think we've covered quite a substantial part of the book and given listeners quite a good taste of what to expect in the chapters. Um, While there's plenty more to explore, obviously, by picking up the book, any study is necessarily limited, as you'll be all too aware, I'm sure. Um, Are there any areas you're interested in exploring further, or is there anyone else doing exciting work right now that you could point us towards? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think one of the areas that, that I try to touch on, but I'm not an expert in, is this question of colonization, you know, ongoing colonialism and settler colonialism in relation to cities in general and to uh, gentrification. So that's an area that I think is still understudied. As I note in the book, gentrification has long used colonization metaphors to talk about the process, yet academics at least have not really grappled with the way that gentrification is perhaps part of a long-term process of uh, ongoing colonization in many places, including Canada, where where I'm from. So there are scholars looking at this, um, people looking at Indigenous planning processes, at Indigenous resistance in uh, urban communities. So I I would encourage people to both uh, look up that work, but also to 
inform themselves about the communities that they live in, uh, who was here first, <laughs> um, you know, what what is the Indigenous history of your community, if there is one, or what is the, the role that your nation has played in colonialism? This is a great starting point that is not unconnected to gentrification. As I mentioned, there's also a growing body of work that's connecting racial capitalism to gentrification. So folks like uh, Brandy Thompson Summers, for example, uh, is a, she's a gentrification researcher that has uh, looked at uh, gentrification in Washington, D.C., for example. And the, the aim of this work is to both historicize gentrification in terms of the racial dynamics of cities and land markets and segregation and housing policy, and to acknowledge the resistance that many communities of color have long been been practicing, uh, whether it was resistance against urban renewal policies, resistance against housing segregation, and today resistance against gentrification, and making sure that that is uh, part of the literature. There's also a lot of great work on uh, the relationship between queer communities and gentrification, uh, work that's trying to complicate a, a kind of longstanding story, which has been about um, LGBTQ plus communities as kind of early wave gentrifiers, but who may become victims of displacement over time. Again, not that that story is totally wrong, but it's not super nuanced and doesn't take into account the diversity that's encompassed in that acronym, right, LGBTQ+, and the way in which people within that community have been positioned very differently with respect to gentrification. So um, there's a relatively new book called Queer New York by Jen Jack Giza King that explores some of these dynamics, particularly in relationship to uh, lesbian and trans folks in New York who, um, for the most part, were... were uh, you know, not members of the um, stereotypical gay neighborhoods and experience gentrification in different ways. So that, those are just a few examples of the kind of work that's being done that I think is really valuable to uh, understanding gentrification now. Yeah, those all sound really interesting. Thank you. Um, so finally, we've come to the plugging section of the podcast. <laughs> um, so do you have any new or ongoing projects that you'd like to just just to mention? Well, this book comes out on September 6th. So that is definitely my main area of focus right now. Um I don't know, some of your listeners might also be interested to know that I am also an academic career coach. So that's something that I do um, at the moment, kind of on, on the side of my regular full-time academic job. But if people are interested in learning more about that, they can look up Leslie Kern Coaching and find out about um, the kind of work that I do there. There's also a blog that that people might find interesting and helpful, especially, you know, academics, grad students who might be listening. Um, there's some, I think, uh, posts that, that address many of the common struggles that we have as academics. And to that end, um, I'm also working on uh, another book with a, a co-author, Roberta Hawkins, that is all about 
the vision of a feminist academia and the kinds of practical things that uh, people can do to make change in uh, their academic institutions to move us towards a more equitable, um, less, uh, what, what is he, less neoliberal and less less demoralizing, disillusioning uh, form of, of academia. So yeah, that's that's another ongoing project. Oh, and there's also an edited collection coming out uh, called A Research Agenda for Gentrification that I've been working on with Winifred Curran that should be out in 2023, looking at different approaches to gentrification and um, highlighting this question of resistance and the different kinds of things that communities all over the world can do to push back. It all sounds really interesting. Definitely the academic work has, has a long way to go. It's very important work to be doing there. Um, so thanks so much for speaking with me, Leslie. It's been uh, really interesting. Thank you. It's been, been a pleasure speaking to you.